Hello, and welcome to Roll for Topic. I'm Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rao. This is a podcast where we randomly select a topic related to running the games and discuss it. This week, we're joined by Mark. Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing really good. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So, Mark, uh, you and I um, play in a game together. Um, and when I was yeah, putting out a call we've for... played in a few, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we're currently playing in a 7C game together, um, which is super fun. Um, yeah, and then when I put out the call for uh, other GMs who wanted to come in and, and guest on the um, the podcast, you raised your hand. I was I was a little surprised, but not totally surprised <laughs> that you're also a GM. So yeah, why don't you tell me tell us a little bit about like sort of your gaming history? Like when did you start, and what do you what do you play, and all that? Yeah, it, it occurs to me that you have seen me a lot as a player and never as a GM. Um, so I uh, I started with role playing games when I was in middle school I think um, with the uh, in in retrospect uh, not most amazing option uh, of Rifts which oh, was yeah. uh, published by Palladium Games uh, and you know as as a like thirteen year old. It was great because it was like big robots and explosions and stuff. And you you could get like really crunchy about stuff in a way that appealed to me as a 13-year-old with that sort of mindset. Um, but the game mechanics were super broken and like it had a lot of problems. Um, so it was an interesting introduction. Um, and I played for a while. I didn't have a, a real great group to play with at the time. Um, but where I really got into it was actually playing in a game. Uh, it was one of the early games GM'd by your former guest, Matt Wilson, um, who I went to high school with. Oh, okay. And so in high school, he ran a game in the GURPS system uh, in his basement. Uh, and that was when I sort of got back into it and really got hooked. Um, I still play GURPS to this day. Uh, I am gearing up to start uh, GMing a new GURPS campaign. Uh, we did character creation, but uh, this weekend is going to be the, the first actual like game session. Um, so uh, I started GMing in college, I think, um, and have done that on and off ever since. Uh, it turns out that when I moved 750 miles uh, from Michigan to North Carolina, <laughs> yeah. I, I suddenly like lost access to this readily available gaming group yeah. that I had. That happen, and yeah. like in college, it was like, hey, I'm going to start a role-playing game. How do I find players? I could just say that in a conversational tone of voice in a dining hall yes. and 10 people would raise <laughs> their hands. Yeah. And like suddenly I had to do the effort of like finding other adult human beings to sit down around a table. So it's been a little patchier since I moved. Um, but I'm starting this new campaign. Looking forward to it. We'll see how that goes. But uh, So how many players do you have for that? Uh, so this one is four players. It was originally going to be five, uh, but end boss scheduling of adult humans <laughs> intervened early uh, <laughs> and so it's four why riffs uh, i mean i'm sorry why gurps did you um is it just a system you've always loved uh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so riffs because it was what my parents bought for me for a birthday present when i turned 13 because they thought it would be interesting for me uh and gurps because so GURP stands for Generic Universal Role-Playing System, uh, and it really is. Like, whatever you want to do, you can do in GURPS, and that's both good and bad. Um, but it gives you a ton of flexibility. It doesn't have fixed character classes. It's got a lot of flexibility about how you build your character and at what power level and sort of a mixture of advantages and disadvantages that you can trade off against one another. And so it gives you a ton of flexibility. The downside is, is that it's got a lot of rules to make that happen. Um, and, you know, when I run a GURPS game, I run it pretty fast and loose. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten faster and looser. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I own Rifts as well. And every now and then, every couple of years, I dig it out and I'm like, ah, this would be a fun one to run. But I just can't get past the rules and i i wonder how many gms have that game that was so fun when you're a kid but you really have to be younger with all this time and without 
the cynicism uh, to really enjoy it, you know, uh, or the sophistication to know what you're missing in some other system. It's it's absolutely true. For me, it was Rollmaster, not because uh, now Rollmaster was pretty well designed rule system, but it's just a complex beast. And uh, we, I had so much fun with it as a kid. But you know, I I dig it out every now and then now and look back at it. And it's like I, I I just no longer have the patience to to do this. It's time. It's time, and my life is done. I guess I had sort of two problems with rifts, right? One of them was that all of the source books looked like they were written by a 13-year-old who just kept repeating the phrase, wouldn't it be cool if, which (laughs) as a 13-year-old was awesome. Was cool, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I'm a little older than that now, and I don't necessarily feel like everything needs to be the next greatest thing. They had the problem that lots of people designing Uh, sort of combat mechanics for role-playing games have in that how do you create a system where someone is firing a 22 caliber handgun at a tank (laughs) right like you know one option is well a tank has a million hit points so well fine but my 22 caliber handgun does 10 points of damage and i got a truck full of ammo. Yeah, can, can I so I'm just going to ping away and sooner or later the tank will explode. And like clearly intuitively, that's not how the world works. Right. And so like various games solve that in various different ways. And the way that Rift solves it is it says there are two completely separate types of damage. There's damage and there's mega damage. <laughs> and only mega damage can actually hurt things that have mega damage armor. And it's just like, oh, okay, like I, I see that you you basically solved that problem by just creating two parallel tracks that do exactly the same thing, but well, all right. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know any better. That, that seemed okay. But, like, now I look back at it and I go, man, that's like a that's like a really ham-fisted solution to what should be a pretty simple problem. And there were sort of a variety of things in the Rift system that took that approach of just like, we don't know, so we're going to hit it with a rock. Yeah. Uh, All right. But (laughs) yes. Andy, did you play GURPS? Am I remember that correctly? I have, I have played Mm -hmm. GURPS. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for GURPS and for it has a sort of a, a, a sister system called the hero system that springs from a lot of the same conceptual ground. These uh, big, uh, complex, but also very comprehensive, uh, you know, generic systems that are intended to be used to do all kinds of genres. I'm, I'm fascinated by the effort put into these games i really respect them that said they also right they teeter right on the edge of too complex for me and the people i usually play for so it's kind of a mixed uh, mixed bag yeah and i like the other thing that i find really interesting about gurps is that you can play any two gms worth of gurps and have two completely different experiences right because there are so many rules that no one uses all of them no one and you're not really intended to right like are you running a sort of a modern campaign people running around in the 21st century well you aren't using the rules for sword combat very much yeah probably not gonna come up (laughs) yeah like how many how many people in your 21st century campaign have an arbalest well, not very many. <laughs> there are rules for them, but you're not really using that. And you probably don't have psionics and magic and superpowers and ultra tech. And like, you don't have all of those things in the same campaign. And so like you use some subset of it and you ignore some of the like, listen, this is how you do really fine grain control of rapid fire weapons. And some people are like, listen, I just want to roll the hit once. Well, okay. Right. And so it, it's one of those things that like, I can say GURPS and Andy has some clear idea of what that meant to him. And I bet if he sat down at my table this weekend, it would not be what he just thought. <laughs> of, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't we using the like semi-automatic weapon recoil rules? Because well, it, I based exactly. my character around that. Yeah, exactly. I min-maxed for that. And so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a great system if what you want to do is have the flexibility to run the game that you want. But like anything else, it provides you a a tremendous amount of rope 
and some people have the misfortune to find it wrapped around their neck. And so it it has its ups and downs. Um, I think that many people who get started in it and really like it are people who go for a little bit more sort of crunchy simulationist kind of feel, which I definitely preferred when I was younger. Um, And I've adapted my use of the rules as I've gotten older and was prepared to kind of play things a little bit more wide open yeah yeah like to me that sounds like a a, a nightmare to run (laughs) but yeah but i mean it sounds like i would just kind of toss away most of the rule book and just keep keep the part that i wanted (laughs) i have to say that uh, the mention of gurps evokes mixed feelings in me because uh, a couple of years i backed the uh gurps dungeon fantasy kickstarter Uh and uh that's a wonderful product but about two months ago my rabbit uh ate (laughs) the uh eight large chunks of the rule book so it's oh, no. very, very delicious but uh, it's also <laughs> out of print and uh has a lot of rabbit bite chunks out of it so it, it may never get played yeah i uh i go by the approach of not feeding my irreplaceable <laughs> books to a rabbit that's right but you know your mileage that's right it's like rabbit you know the riffs rule book is right there and yeah <laughs> No one will miss it. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, should we get uh, get going on the actual purpose of this show? Oh, yes, yeah, we should. That. Okay, so let me uh, let me do a quick rundown here. If you're not familiar with our show, uh, the way we do this is we roll a d10, or we have our guest roll a d10 with no modifiers, and we take that result and we look it up on our special uh, d10 table of topics, and that will determine the game master related topic that we discuss for the next twenty twenty five minutes. So, with no further ado, uh, will you take a D10? And maybe before you roll, why don't you tell us about the D10? Is this like a is this oh, like a okay. special D10 laden with personal history, or is this some just garbage like cheapo? Well, thing? so I, I guess it's somewhere in between. This actually is a D10 that came as part of the backer rewards when I backed on Kickstarter the new edition of Seventh C. Oh. In anticipation of the game that I currently play with Chris, mm-hmm. okay. so it's uh, sort of a. I think it's supposed to look like bone. It's a mix of whites and browns. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and the uh, the one is in fact a little skull. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so it's kind of pirate themed. Yeah. Well, roll on your uh, pirate skull d10 and tell me what you get. R uh, a two. All right. The topic we'll be discussing today gentlemen is bringing in elements from other game systems into your own game this seems very thematically appropriate given the, yeah, the group exactly. conversation was... yeah so let's start by defining this topic what do you think that that means that i just read <laughs> the, the question that you likely wrote <laughs> yeah that's right i i'm positive i put this on the chart but so okay so let me ask a more specific question so are we talking about uh you know, you're playing D&D and bringing something from GURPS into your D&D game? Or are you talking like bringing something from Settlers of Catan into your D&D game? I would assume that this is more talking about like, yeah, sort of rule sets from other games or, you know, specific rules that you've liked in other games and bringing those over. Okay. Yep. So I, I actually would have read that more broadly. I, okay. I think I think there's a perfectly valid interpretation that's exactly what you said. But I think that there's another piece to say, like, I want to have this other, like, uncovered mechanic in my game. And I'm not necessarily, like, stealing something from another game that already has a rule for it, although that certainly fits under the topic. But just cases where, like, hey, my, my character wants to invest this money that they've found, right? I'm like, okay, like, how do I figure out how to... Do you roll dice and that somehow is a stock (laughs) market or like, I don't know, like, how does that work? I I can I can see sort of inventing things to to meet some need that you have in your game that you might not be familiar with a rule to to cover it. I think that's fair. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that sounds like a good good sort of starting point so i guess then to to turn it around let's let's start with you andy i guess do you have an example of when you've done this well let's see i i'm gonna start so we've just defined a couple different ways we can understand this topic i'm gonna start with kind of the simplest one 
uh, a time when I took a a game element from one role playing system and brought it into another one to achieve a certain effect. Sound fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this was many years ago, and as I've mentioned on the show before, I played a fair amount of Call of Cthulhu and run a fair amount of it, and. Uh, for a very brief period of time, I kind of got in my head that I wanted a more uh, robust and more terrifying or or tense uh, sanity system for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, because a lot of people sit down with Call of Cthulhu and say, you know what the problem is? Yeah. Is that my character is not half insane enough. <laughs> exactly. So what? if you have played Call of Cthulhu, you may remember that Call of Cthulhu... Ch- tracks your kind of sanity level with basically a uh it's it's a brain hit points number so uh your sanity might be at 43 and it sees you see something terrifying or you experience a personal trauma and you lose a couple of points off of it and you pray you don't get down to zero uh that's cool and as it turns out i think that works really well for call of cthulhu but uh i tried for a couple of games bringing in uh a game mechanic called the madness meter from the role-playing game unknown armies are either of you guys familiar with that one i i have heard of it but i haven't actually like read the rules or i certainly haven't played okay yeah well so unknown armies has a uh, system of gauging uh character stress from different different types of stress and it's been so many years since i've cracked open that book i don't remember what they all were but you know there's you know, fear and tension, and uh, there's maybe half dozen different types of mental stress you can accumulate. And uh, so I brought that system into Call of Cthulhu thinking it might be fun to make the kind of sanity system a little bit more uh, versatile than like, you know, okay, you lose three brain hit points. Um, But that was an experiment I decided that didn't really work well um, because... uh, you know, it was a little too complicated for the way I ran Call of Cthulhu. And um, so I guess I mentioned this as, as it was, I guess, a failed experiment, but it was a, an interesting one. And um, But I decided, you know, Call of Cthulhu, at least the way I run it, it it's uh, I run it in a somewhat pulpy manner. And that doesn't really go well with like really nitty gritty uh, tracking lots of different meters of your mental stability. And it really does work better with like how many brain points do you have? I was gonna say, did your um, did your players recognize this, or is this something that you recognized as you were running it that it wasn't right working? It was something I recognized. I didn't explain to the players, you know, the whole background of where I got the system from. I just said, hey, we're gonna try something a little bit different, and I think they went along with it. Again, this is about fifteen years ago, so memory um, memory is fading, but. Uh, they went along with it, but yeah, it wasn't adding. It was wasn't adding anything to the experience. You know, I, I don't know if it was making it worse, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't more fun to have six madness things in Cthulhu, <laughs> uh, or yeah. you know, to decide which which of these meters is being stressed by the sight of this you know headless cultist. Uh, you know, it's so uh, you know. It, I think it worked great for unknown armies, but um, but it wasn't for me for Cthulhu. How about how about how about you guys? Can you share an example where you brought something in from another game or another uh, system? The thing, um, so I've played a couple of sessions of um, Blades in the Dark, um, and the the problem with Blades in the Dark is that it's just so good that it sort of infects everything <laughs> about yes. your thinking, <laughs> thinking in other games. Um, so the the thing that I've started doing with my D and D game uh, games is on like critical fumbles, right? So if they roll, roll a natural one, I'll start introducing minor consequences um, to the situation. Okay. Right, so whether that's like, yeah, like they drop their sword or something like that, you know? So some sort of like minor problem, but it's not like a, you know, world-changing problem for them of where it just sort of shifts shifts the battlefield a little bit, you know? So uh, sometimes I'll actually even give them a choice. So it's like, okay, you roll the one, so you are either going to fall off that chair you're standing on or, you know, take an attack of opportunity or, or you know, something something along those lines. To me, that that's a lot of fun. It's it's sort of game-breaking for D&D because D&D combat is, is pretty pretty well-tuned and stuff, but um, it's just like it, it also makes it more interesting to roll, I think, <laughs> you know, because if you have that ability for something to actually change even when you miss, um, I think it, it, it introduces something more narratively interesting um, to the system. 
Now, did you start? I mean, you are a relatively new D and D GM. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of years. That's yeah. not that new. But did you start start out from the beginning with this this element incorporated into your D and D, or like part way through the campaign where you're like, you know, we're going to try something new? Yeah, it was part way through, and it was absolutely just Blades of the Dark because it's yeah because if you've if you've played Blades, I mean, there's just this really fun kind of flow to the game of of give and take, and you're. You're kind of constantly feeling like you're going, you know, one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back, um, with the consequences and stuff. And I, I wanted to introduce that a little bit into combat because combat had been getting to the point where it was really just like roll, did I hit, did I not hit? Okay, move on. Roll, did I hit, did I not hit? Yeah, just to add something, something to it. What about you, Mark? So, uh, you know, we were discussing earlier that uh, the main system that I, I run games in is GURPS. And GURPS has its failings, but a lack of a rule to cover just about anything you might like to do is very rarely one of them. Um, so I have less experience in seeing something in another game and saying, wow, like that's really cool. And the system that I normally work in just doesn't have a way of handling that. So I'm going <laughs> to steal this, right? Um, Man, if only this game... Man, this game's rules for recoilless rifles is just so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. GURPS actually has a sidebar specifically about recoilless rifles. (laughs) I'm not making that up. So, like, GURPS has a skill. There is a skill printed in a GURPS book where you can spend character points to determine how good you are at occupying and defending offshore oil rigs. (laughs) Which, like, if you need to do that... You ought to have a skill for it. But the idea that like you would publish a list of skills so comprehensive that that was on the list is mind-boggling. You know, someone just basically went to heaven, though, when they cracked <laughs> yeah, open. I'm sure There's they did. One, one dude yeah. out there and his group right. is like, and, oh, my you know, goodness. In, in fairness, like that's not in the core rule book. That was in a, a supplement that they published that was so for running a campaign where the party was basically a special forces group of soldiers. Um, and so like, it made sense that, you know, some of them might know how to do that because of that. I very rarely run into situations where I go, I'm going to steal that because I, I just don't have a way to do it. I do from time to time run into things where, you know, that doesn't really sound like a thing that any role-playing game bothers with. And so, like, I'm going to sort of sort out what of the existing rules I can use to kind of decide, okay, like, how do I map this onto the way that GURPS handles dice, right? And and simulate something that no one had, had bothered with before. I, I think there is actually a GURPS supplement that, that covers the stock market. I, I used that as an example earlier. I've just faked that in the past. Um, but I've also... Um, I had a character once in a in a campaign that I was running. It was just like totally unrelated, who declared one day that what he really wanted out of this session was that he was going to challenge this guy who ran the little noodle stand that they walked past on the way to some other thing that they did in an earlier session. He was going to challenge that guy to a cooking contest, <laughs> and it was like cooking contests. How do you do cooking contest? I mean, I can do a simple like skill contest, your cooking skill versus his cooking skill, and you both roll, but that seems like too simple. So like, okay, let's talk about what ingredients you're going to use to make your noodle dish. And does that provide modifiers? Like what modifier does a really fresh green onion provide in a noodle contest? Ah, shit, I don't know. And so like I spent, you know, a couple of minutes just kind of sitting there while like everyone went and grabbed a snack. You know, like, okay, I was like, guys, give me, give me two minutes. <laughs> and so like everyone went and got some more chips or whatever. And I sat there and was like, okay, yeah, this is a cooking contest and here you go. And like it turned into sort of a series of rolls and I appreciate a certain amount of that. And I, I feel like it requires more work from me as a GM um, just because I need to be able to make stuff up on the fly, but I also got to be able to do it in a way that doesn't feel completely out of place with the way the rest of the world feels. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's a real danger with bringing stuff in from other games where, you know, you have something that works really well in another context and you think, well, that's kind of interesting and I'd like to try it over here. And like, 
it's good in its context, but it's just kind of jarring in this one. And so that's exactly I, what that's basically what happened with that Cthulhu unknown, Ar- unknown armies thing. Yeah, you know, I, I took something from a game that was designed to evoke a very specific type of experience and I plopped it in a game that was aiming at something else and it just was a misfire. Right. Yeah. And so I I feel like there are a lot of great opportunities here, right? Because you can't or I guess you could. You probably shouldn't rely on any one person or group of people to have already solved any challenge you might encounter. But on the other hand, uh I think you you need to have a certain level of trust in your rule system. And if you don't, you should find a different one. You know, they've sort of sorted things out and and made it reasonably coherent, right? Like there's a lot of things about D&D that feel strange if you like sit back and look at them and go like, that's not, that's not how the world works. So, well, no, but it is the way that the universe of D&D works. And if you open up any given D&D book, chances are pretty good that when you read the way that it handles something, you'll recognize it as sort of fitting in the system. And so, um, you know, you can take stuff from other places and make them work in a system. And sometimes you can do it really successfully. But I, I feel like you need to be sort of thoughtful about how you do it so that you don't drop something in that is clearly just airdropped in from a different universe. Yeah. Like you're just pausing the game to go play a different game and then come right. back to the- <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's like those video games where you have a mini game in the game that's just a completely different game. And it's like, okay, that was interesting, but like, did you really spend development dollars on this? Yeah. Yeah. I had a had a session recently where um the the party ended up at a bar and like one of them wanted to gamble right and so it's like okay i guess i have to come up with a gambling game real fast <laughs> right you know so we used die, like dice to roll it and they you know did some interesting stuff with like the story and stuff it was it was really fun but it was just like on the moment you're like well uh i don't there isn't i don't have the the rule book in front of me for gambling so let's just figure it out right <laughs> yeah I mean, all of that just increases the cognitive load for the person trying to run the game yeah yeah whereas if i if i had some sort of manual where i was sitting there like oh good like i have the the, the 10 games to play when your party wants to play a gambling game and attack and you know like let me just pull that up real quick it's like that's not fun right like go ahead andy oh yeah i was just i was gonna take it off in a slightly different direction but uh i i it would be fun to hear some more lists of you know what are some specific rules you lifted from one game and put into uh, another but i find these days that most i do a fair amount of lifting from one system into another but it's relatively rarely like a specific rule or a mechanic it's usually uh it's usually something a little bit more metagamey. Um, and for instance, I use a lot of stuff from some of the more recent, like narrative driven games, like Fate Core. Um, since I was introduced to Blades of the Dark, I've lifted stuff like that. And I've kind of pulled that into D&D, not as like a, an actual rule that I'm doing, but as a concept that guides the way that I run the game. As an example, I know it sounds kind of abstract, but. As an example, um, in Fate, the Fate Fate Core system, when you design like a scene or encounter, an encounter, you're encouraged to come up with a couple of distinct descriptive phrases um, describing that encounter or descri- describing the environment, with the idea that those are specific things that the PCs will interact with when they're in the scene. And I've started doing that with D and D when I think about set, you know, creating an encounter or a set piece. I have started thinking, okay, what are like two cool things about this environment that I can put out there for the PCs to interact with or not? And that's not like a rule, but it is an idea I wasn't, I didn't think of in that specific a way until I read Fate. Um, and I kind of liked it. And I'm not running Fate, but I'm running D&D. And it's something that can work in my D&D game. So does that make sense to you guys? It does. That's a good thought. Just sort of like in hindsight, thinking about it. That's something that I think Matt Wilson, who's been my GM for much of like the formative part, part and even actually probably still the majority of the, the games that I have played in, is is good at. Like he does a good job with that in that he he sketches things out so you have a good sense of where you're at, but he doesn't provide so much detail that you don't have any room 
to, to narrate and sort of make it your own thing. And I've never heard it spelled out as a guideline for a GM. But like now that you say it, like thinking back, most of the good role-playing experiences I have had have basically followed that rule, whether by accident or design. So that's that's a nice thought. I was just going to, uh, so recently what I did, what I've started doing with towns where I don't have like a clear map written out um, for them is pulling from. <laughs> Sorry, I'll go ahead. But yeah, uh, so with, yeah, with towns where you don't have a map, yeah, like all written out for it, what I'll do is I'll just build it collaboratively with the group. And this is something that I'm just pulling directly from like, yeah, the storytelling games essentially, right? So rather than being like the GM as God who just kind of has a, a full knowledge of the world, I'll just ask him like, okay, what does this town have? Like, what's the industry, you know, that this, this town is built upon? Like, does it have a bar? Does it have like a, you know, a shrine or whatever? So we can just build it together that way, which is really fun because then you can also sort of pick up from the players what they think is important um, and like the thing that they want <laughs> want to do. So if you can quickly sort of say, okay, these are four buildings and we have an industry, so we have probably a shop or two and we have a shrine and there's this like, you know, two specific things that you really want to do here. So we have some NPCs and stuff. All of a sudden you have this very like flourish, uh, flourishing town and you haven't really had to do much work, I guess, ahead of time. You can just do it all at the table. Uh, right there. So that's something that I, I've really picked up from some of the yeah, storytelling games. Like uh, Kids on Bikes has an amazing um, collaborative world building exercise that you go through, um, which I think, you know, anyone who runs the sort of game where they, they do act as sort of the GM god, it'd be worth running at least a one shot in some of those just to get a flavor of like what it can be and like how much less stress you can have. <laughs> yeah. I, I am on the opposite end of that spectrum as, as a GM. Which, I mean, like you have probably seen me enough as a player to not yeah. be shocked by that. But <laughs> I, I am very much a believer in the idea that if I have done my homework, um, it should be difficult for the players to catch me by surprise by looking behind the curtain. Ooh, okay. Um, and the players ought to be able to catch me by surprise in terms of what they do about what they see behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. right like there's a little man pulling levers back there yeah like well i want to try and jam one of the levers like well yeah. why would you do that yeah but, okay all right what happens when you jam one of the levers right but it's important to me as a gm that the world not end six inches beyond the player's perception right and so i work really hard at world building and i'm going to be perfectly honest that means i do a lot of work that never amounts to anything because like I figure out how this works and then no one cares. No one ever asks, no one ever looks, they walk right past it, don't pay any attention. And like that was 20 minutes of my life that I just won't ever get back. I find that for me, and I get that not everyone, I am not most people. Uh, but I find that for me, I really like the idea that the world functions in the absence of the player characters. Right, That there's stuff going on, there's people doing things, and they have their motivations, they have their goals, and they don't always accomplish their goals, but they're trying to do stuff. And it all sort of continues to spin when the players aren't looking, because I feel like it makes the world more believable for the players, because they can ask me a question about, like, hey, what happens if I walk three blocks that way? Well, I know basically what's three blocks that way, right? Like, I don't have a, a map that shows you every storefront and every apartment. And I know the name of every NPC who lives in every apartment, right? But I know basically that that's a residential district and there's, you know, a corner store probably because it's, you know, kind of that mixed use kind of real estate. And, uh, you know, I, I have enough of a sense of it that the it, it feels like a much richer world. And that's way more work. Uh, there's a reason that most of the games I run are actually in the same game world. And it's because I've spent a long time sort of sorting out how it works. You know, so I run a sort of a far future campaign. It's some sort of mix between, I don't know, Star Trek and cyberpunk. It's a multi-stellar empire. Yeah. Uh, and I had a player ask me the other day, like, what's the name of the currency? 
Well, I, I mean, I can tell you the name of the currency. And in fact, if you care, like I have this whole system worked out <laughs> for like how you deal with uh, currency exchange in a system where you don't have instantaneous communication like you do in the modern world with currency markets. Like what happens when you introduce information delay to currency exchange? What does that do to the macroeconomics? And like no one cares. No one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they really didn't. Um, but like. The fact that that I've sort of sorted out a logical reason why you would have different currencies in different places and what effect that has on characters if they want to like transport money to a different place makes it feel like there's sort of this vibrant economy going on, even if the players only interact with little corners of it from time to time. And I, I really enjoy that when I, you know, read fiction or play video games or whatever, like worlds that feel very realized, even if I can't see all of them, are just more interesting to me to to move around in. Yeah, it's, it seems like you're giving to your players just lots of hooks for things they can explore, right? So if you had someone who was like, I want to you know, make a heist where we somehow subvert this currency system or something like that, you have that. I, I want to introduce a five-minute delay where I find out the price of the thing in the other system before anyone else does. Okay, yeah. right? There's yeah. real money to be made there. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, to the point of the sort of collaborative town building, right, it's important that you don't build the world to the point that the players have no role in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes a player is going to say, hey, is there a, is there a hardware store nearby? And the answer shouldn't be, well, no, because I made this map of every building in town and there's no hardware store for 18 blocks in any direction. Like, that doesn't make the game more fun for anyone. Yeah, there's a hardware store. It's half a block up on your left. Uh, I'm hearing that uh, you think Chris's games that he runs are shallow, fake garbage <laughs> games. Is that right? Yes, that is absolutely correct. Chris, you're a bad person and you should feel bad. I'm trying to get a GM fight going here and I'm thinking what rule system could I pull in here uh, to simu simulate two GMs like uh, in a battle of GMing ideology. Uh, I would suggest SCA. <laughs> okay. This is a, there's a there's a, a Power by the Apocalypse game, um, World of Wrestling, which might work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, see, this is the difference, right? Like, Chris wants this sort of silly, very abstract game system, whereas I suggested a full-contact combat sport. Yeah, yeah. No. And so, like, you know. No, so, I, I want us to forget that there's dice even on the table. <laughs> and we can just, like, Oh, yeah, I want to forget that there's dice, together. but it, it's because I'm hitting you with a physical okay. object. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I lose that one. <laughs> While we were chatting, I thought of another example to, to pull us back to our topic of uh, something I've pulled in uh, that I'm doing right now, actually. Um, I am in the early stages of running a campaign of the One Ring, uh, which is a Tolkien-based uh, system. And although it's not the first or only game that does this by any means, it has a neat system of determining what the characters do in downtime between adventures. Um, and it kind of it assumes the that the players are not you know adventuring full time, but that they uh, are adventuring during appropriate day adventure for a few months or something like that. But that there's times in between adventures when they're going back to the places that are important to them and care, going about their business. And that works that works really well for Tolkien. And I wouldn't want to pull it in exactly for like your typical dungeon crawling D and D experience. But I do really like the idea of you know make it kind of official let's talk let's talk about what your players are doing in the month since they you know were last out adventuring you know did they go home Man, i feel they... so bad for some of those characters though <laughs> like what would you do last week i defeated smaug yeah <laughs> oh and you're back in the accounting department are you <laughs> yeah. Like... yeah i've been thinking i have a very nascent uh water deep uh, game going on i've just been thinking about like uh especially since there's like long gaps between the actual game sessions that we have i've been thinking about like yeah what let's uh let's steal that idea from like the one ring and other games hmm. and uh let's make this kind of official like you we've been away from the table for a while so of your characters uh let's let's roll about what they were doing and yeah 
So where I've actually seen a, a reasonably well-developed system for that is in LARPs. Oh, where, interesting. Like, so I, I played in a LARP for a while and, uh, you know, it met monthly. And so, like, you would have one weekend a month where you were in character but particularly in the case of a LARP, like everyone continues to age at the normal speed, <laughs> yeah. right? And so like you just got to have some sort of explanation about where all the time is going. Um, and so they they had this whole, you know, sort of explanation that like you are all adventurers, but you like agree that there's a time where you're going to all gather together in this place, right? And that happens to be the weekends where we rented this campground for us to do this. Yeah. And so, like, you know, you would show up and you would do stuff for a weekend. And then it was sort of assumed that everyone went back to their hometown and just like did whatever it was that they did in the meantime. And that was sort of part of your character backstory. And there was some mechanics about, you know, if depending on your skills or whatever, you could earn some money while you were doing that or do different stuff. But they sort of had a sort of a forcing function where they had to have some reasonable explanation for that. I've seen that less in tabletop games, but it's it's an interesting thought, particularly if you're meeting less frequently. It's an interesting uh, thought because that's an example. I mean, obviously LARPs are closely related to tabletop role-playing games. But, sure, yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's a system that makes a ton of sense in a LARP. Doesn't usually come up in tabletop role-playing game, but it could, there's certainly cases where pulling that in from like the LARP type experience could add something to your tabletop game. Yeah. LARPs have to have like a solve a bunch of other problems too. Like what is that? Oh, well it's a, it's a magical device, but it only works in Mundania. It's like, yeah, put your phone away, man. We're trying to play a LARP. Like, <laughs> um, Blades has a really good downtime system as well too. Right. So there, you can have like project projects and stuff going um, right, and since, since everything is based on sort of like scores, right? So you're sort of doing doing a like two to three session score, and then you have downtime. And so there's there's this whole set of rules that you can ignore if you're just doing a one shot or whatever about downtime and and gang activity and uh, turf and stuff like that, which is which is pretty cool. I, I like that they kind of recognize that. And then two, if you're playing in a long campaign, you can have those natural breaks where you're like, okay, well we can't meet for two months, so we'll just have downtime. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it. it seems interesting to be able to give players the option to sort of have something that that stands in for a long character arc, right? Like I have this project going, and like it's going to take a while for me to finish, and I'll work on it when I can. But like something to work towards. Yeah. So that's that's nice. That's a nice thought. I I don't know how relevant it is to sort of like the game I'm running, but like I can certainly see certain types of games that that being like a nice mechanic you know uh thinking about uh, our very early discussion we were talking about childhood games we played in our childhood and i mentioned i played role master and that makes me think that there are actually a, a number of games throughout you know role-playing publishing history that uh, have kind of baked into their core the idea that you would use it in a different game so i'm thinking role master uh and I'm sure a historian of role-playing games could correct me on the details, but uh, Rollmaster basically started as an alternative combat system for D&D that was more detailed and more, quote, realistic. Um, and the earliest use of Rollmaster, it was published with the idea that you would play D&D, but then when combat broke out, you would switch over to the Rollmaster combat system, play out the you know a more realistic combat, and then you'd go back to D&D. And in Rollmaster's case, that evolved into its own kind of standalone system. But I bet there's other examples of of games that started out with that, like here's a here's a rule system for you to plug into whatever you're doing that handles situation X better than your system probably does. It would be fun sometime to go through and, and see if there are other obvious examples of that. It, it's so not... I actually own one. Well, what's that? So I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the system that it's natively for, and it's telling that I don't know. Um, uh, so the title of the book is A Compendium of Modern Firearms. Oh, and it's it's like a list of guns. It's clearly intended for a role-playing game. And I can tell that the role-playing game it was natively for uses a percentile dice system. And I know nothing else because I actually bought it not for use in a game but because it was the best reference I could find 
for like a certain time period of modern firearm development for a military history thing that I was doing. And like I needed specific information about European firearms manufactured after the Second World War. So like Cold War era European firearms. And like nobody just publishes that. But these guys did, right? And they had some earlier stuff and they had some later stuff. But like that chapter was the best version of that information I could find. But it turns out that because it had detailed information about you know, effective range of a lot of these guns and rate of fire. And it had a nice uh, little conversion chart at the at the front of the book to go from the metric to the imperial system. Fine, I can do that in my head. But like, you know, if you weren't familiar with it, it, it makes it easy to kind of get it into something that then maps to your game, right? Like I know that I this game uses a grid system or a hex system and each square or hex is one yard across or one meter across or you know, however big it is and go, okay, well, so that tells me that this thing has an effective range of 700 hexes or whatever, right? Like, like they had a little note at the beginning of the book that said like, listen, we, we did this for our own purposes, but like, this is applicable to a lot of stuff. And and here's how you might do some conversion from information as we present it here to how you're going to want it in your game. And they had a bunch of information too. Like the thing that I found most useful in it for what I was doing with it was that it actually has really detailed information about the mechanical accuracy of a gun at different ranges. Hmm. And so depending on the manufacturing tolerances and the type of ammunition and a bunch of stuff, right, a fairly rack infantry rifle is expected to to hold, uh, for someone to be able to shoot four minute of angle, which basically means you shoot a four inch group at 100 yards, give or take. There's some rounding error there, but take my word for it. Um, but that actually tells me something about like, so I'm trying to hit this distant target in my game. Like how likely am I to do it? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. You're about this likely. Well, that means that your target number on these dice ought to be about this because that gives you about the right percentage chance of hitting it. And then we might modify things cause like it's not a stationary target or cause you're under stress or whatever. Like we can add as many rules mechanics to that as we want. But it was basically just like, here's a bunch of raw information and go use it in whatever system makes you interested, including potentially this paper that you're writing. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> like, like pretty intentional about that. So I, I'm happy to keep talking while we are. I'm going to see if I can can find that that book. Um, I was just going to ask sort of like, a, yeah, see if you can find that book. But it's just sort of a wrap up question. It, it seems like they're the things we've been talking about are primarily like mechanics driven. Um, so it's. I guess, is this accurate to say that it seems like most of the time when you're trying to reach for something um, to add to the game, it's because there's some sort of mechanical deficiency um, Mm -hmm. in the game um, or narrative deficiency, I guess, but probably more mechanical um, deficiency. I think at least in my experience, it's not like I do this a ton, but yeah, the the reason I would reach out to find a a different combat system or a different sanity system would be because... I felt that there was something lacking in the one I was using. And it does seem to be a, a pretty mechanical thing, at least in my experience. Uh, yeah, I mean, how would you answer that question yourself? To me, the the interesting line then is so, you know, at what point are, do you bring in so much from another system that you really should just be running that system? It's like, you know, how do you make the decision almost to um, like, okay, I really want to run D&D, but I also want this like one extra thing, Yeah, you know, in it, you know, versus, okay, what I actually want is to run this other thing, but I just want this one element from D and D, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of finding, finding that line. Um, you know, it seems like a game like GURPS, right. has so much going on that you can just sort of like, yeah, focus in on it. But, you know, for smaller games, you're like, like Andy, you mentioned with, you know, fate, um, right. There's some really compelling stuff from that, that you might want to pull into D and D, but you probably don't want to run fate. Right. right there's right. A, lot of, a lot of other stuff that goes along with um, that setting that isn't quite right for you. I feel like that threshold depends a lot on your group, right? Like if I'm playing a game with a bunch of people who have only ever played D&D, it's probably way easier, particularly if they've played a lot of D&D, to play D&D and add some stuff to it yeah. <laughs> than to be like, we're going to play GURPS. Incidentally, I have this system for figuring out the stats of a dragon from D&D, right? Like that that feels like it's a much bigger lift for your group. 
And there are certainly some groups who say, hey, a brand new system, that's really interesting and I want to try it. And there are some groups who are like, listen, man, like I don't want to have to figure out a whole new character creation system and create a new character. And like I just want to play the character that I've been playing, that I'm used to, that I like in this system that I already understand the rules, so I don't have to think about that part of it too hard, right? And I can sort of invest the time and effort that I have available for role-playing in role-playing as compared to all this other crap. You know, uh, that definitely fits my experience uh, in general. You know, I'm, I am playing with people that usually are somewhat casual gamers, and and I am pretty hesitant to spring, like, a new system that they have to learn on them. So I... I would feel a pretty strong incentive if I was unhappy with something in, say, 5th edition D&D. I would feel a pretty strong incentive to find a way to uh, bring something else into D&D rather than to say, hey, guys, we're switching over to, like, you know, um, Fate or 13th Age or something like that. I'm going to cut us off here. We should wrap up. It looks like we've been going for for a little bit. Uh, yeah, this is a really good conversation. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming yeah, on. Yeah, um, it's been my pleasure. It was fantastic. Good to meet you, Mark. Yeah, you too. The the last thing um, that we should do, right? Uh, so, um, so you rolled on the table. Um, we need to fill that slot back up. So, what we'd like to ask of you, and if you don't have something ready to go, that's fine, is to add a topic onto the table. So, this will be something that either you discuss if you come back on as another guest and happen to roll that number, or someone else will have to discuss if they roll that number. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I actually have a a topic to suggest. Is it uh, is it why riffs is better than GURPS? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, I, I uh, am not uh, interested in having a holy war <laughs> about game systems. Uh, I feel about game systems the same way I feel about programming languages, which is that they are all tools and you should pick the best tool for the job. And what makes a tool better for a job depends a lot on the job and the people and a variety of other s- subjects. And there's no point fighting about it. My suggestion is uh, the question of how do you determine the power level that you want to play a game at? Interesting. And how do you resolve the problem when you and or some subset of your players have a different idea? Mm, Okay. Okay. That's a really good question. That is fantastic. Yeah, uh, I love having guests on because the topics they contribute uh, to our table are like way better than the ones Chris and I brainstormed up together. So, I mean, the answer, of course, is that you use the mega damage <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> power level. <laughs> so I was just going to say that I, I did find the book and it says right here on the cover, compatible with Cyberpunk, Call of Cthulhu, Twilight 2000, Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, Hero System, and all D20 based systems. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a range. <laughs> so uh, it's yeah. Edge of the Sword, Volume 1, Compendium of Modern Firearms, and it's published by Artelsorian Games. Oh, nice. yeah. Okay. Interesting. They're, they Cyberpunk is on there because they published Cyberpunk, I think. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, in fact, I think published several of these. Okay. That's interesting. That is. Um, we'll drop a photo of the book in the, the show notes for this one. Um, I think it's time to wrap up. So without further ado, I've been Chris Salzman. I'm Andy Rowe. And I'm Mark French. Remember, if the players are having fun, you're a great GM.